We're continuing our series called God Song. Uh, today we'll be in Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is an especially moving psalm, at least it has been for me as I've been uh, reading this over and over and preparing. Actually, I've been uh, reading this psalm for more than a month, and uh, I, I can't really count the number of times that uh, I haven't been able to make it through it because there's something just incredible. There's just something incredible in this psalm that's powerful and weighty. And so what I want to do before I begin to, to preach on Psalm 103, I want to give us opportunity as a church body to just sit under the weight and the glory of this psalm. So today we're going to read this psalm twice. I already heard, you guys took my cue, it was, it was glorious. I heard the pages turning, so many of you I know are already there in your Bibles, thank you. What I'm going to ask you to do now is put your finger in that or put your bulletin in that and just go ahead and close it over. The first time I want to read it and I want you just to listen. We'll give you a chance on the second read through to follow along and if you want to make notes in your text to do that. But the first time, I'd like for us just to hear the word of the Lord. And so if you'd be willing... Um, I'll read, read it twice. The first time you just listen. If you want to close your eyes and, and picture or whatever you do, feel free to do that. But let's listen together to Psalm 103. Psalm 103 of David. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenants and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all you heavenly hosts, who you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere, in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Thanks be to God. 
Now, what I'd like to do is to read through this a second time. You're welcome now to reopen your text, and um, you'll have a chance to make sure I didn't make any of that up as I read. Um, and uh, what I'd invite you to do, I'm going to give you a, a mission this time as we read through. Anytime when we read a, a scripture passage, especially when it's a little bit longer like this, one helpful thing to do to help us understand it is to see if we can identify kind of a key verse uh, that the, the passage revolves around. And so as I read through this, or as we read through this together a second time, uh, I'm going to invite you to be watching and just see if you can uh, see a verse that you think kind of encapsulates or summarizes the whole psalm. There's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. Um, so just be thinking about that as we read through. I'll make some comments as we go and give you some time to see if you can uh, or see what you would identify as the key verse. So let's start again at the beginning. Psalm 103 of David. Praise the Lord, my soul. That praise the Lord, we could also say bless the Lord. So we've already sung this a little bit together today, right? Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. You may remember in previous Psalms this summer, we talked about a tool that the Hebrews use when they write poetry. Do you remember what it's called? I know it's been a few weeks. Parallelism, like parallel lines, right? So one line will say it one way. Another line will repeat the same idea with different words. And so that's what we have David doing here. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives your sins, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. He's kind of saying the same things with different words and taking it like a step further each time. And he crowns you with love and compassion. Verse 5, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Now, I don't know what version you're reading, um, but does it have a colon, the two dots at the end of verse 7? Okay, good. So what that means is that verse 8 is going to tell us what the Lord made known about himself to Moses, which is exactly what happens. In verse 8, we have almost a direct quote. I think it is a direct quote from Exodus 34, 6. You may remember the story in Exodus 34, 6. Before Exodus 34, God had given Moses two tablets of stone, right? He wrote the, God wrote the Ten Commandments on them. Moses went down, saw the people rebelling, got angry, and in his anger, Anger broke the stone tablets. And then there's, you know, some stuff to deal with. And then God comes to Moses and said, you've sinned. In your anger, you broke, my, broke the commandments. So I want you to chisel out, carve out two tablets, come back up the mountain, and I'm going to give you the law, the Ten Commandments. Again, so Exodus 34, 6 happens that second time. Moses is up there before God because of his own sin. And Moses says, God, show me you. Show me who you are. Let me catch a glimpse of you. And God says, I can't do that. No sinful man could see me and live. But what I'll do is I'll pass by you and cover you with my hand. And as God passes by Moses, this is what he says. Verse 8 of Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. Let me just ask a question. 
How high is that? How high are the heavens above the earth? Any, does anybody know the answer to that? Surely somebody has an idea. Okay, I didn't either, so I, I did some research. Here's what I found out. Outer space is 62 miles from the earth's surface. 62 miles. We can measure that, right? And 62 miles doesn't seem that far. I mean, we could, we could drive that far, you know, before our afternoon nap today. Um, when the space shuttle flies, it takes about 32 seconds for the space shuttle to reach outer space, uh, what is considered outer space, another two minutes or 120 seconds to get out of the Earth's atmosphere and total from launch until they enter into orbit, it's about eight and a half minutes, okay? So we can measure the distance from the Earth to uh, the heavens above the Earth. We can go 62 miles, okay, well, suddenly it just doesn't seem so big anymore, right? Um, but to King David, I mean, he would, that, it blew his mind. He had no way to measure that. I mean, to him, it, it, it'd be like if we said, um, you know, from earth to the farthest street reaches of the galaxy. I mean, the, King David saying, there's just no way to measure how great is God's love for those who fear him. As far as the east is, from the west, maybe you have an understanding of this. If you started here and go east, uh, you'll never go west. Even if you stop west of where you started, you never went west to get there, right? You were always going east. By going east, you cannot go west. David is saying here, east and west never meet. And so as far as they are from each other, that's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. Verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. This isn't false humility. This is, a, this is David pointing this back to Genesis, it says, where it says, God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. That's all we are. We're dust. Without the next step in Genesis where God breathes the breath of life, we're just dust. God knows that we're dust. The, the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. If you were making notes in your text when we preached through James, you remember that James actually refers to these verses. Verse 17, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is on those who fear him. His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Okay, so I gave you plenty of time. What do you think, and just shout them out, what do you think might be the key verse of Psalm 103? Just shout out the verse numbers. Okay, right at the beginning, it happened several times, kind of a key phrase, bless the Lord or praise the Lord. What else did I hear? What? Verse 10, okay, what else? Eight, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. Anybody else want to share what you think? 
There's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. There's, there's different ways to view that. And certainly as we read scripture, the Holy Spirit speaks, uh, speaks to each of us differently according to the will of the Father. As I've studied this, I would happen to agree that, that verse 10 is probably the key verse, or at least it's the one that I kept coming back to, the key verse of chapter 103, verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to to our iniquities. I think the whole focus of Psalm 103 is God's goodness to his people. And there's no greater demonstration of God's goodness and grace and love than the way he deals with our sin. I think too many times, though, we don't experience the full glory of God's goodness because we don't feel the full weight of our sin. You see, I'm afraid we have a tendency to downplay sin. We use other words so that it doesn't feel so serious. We, we make light of sin. As a matter of fact, a week ago yesterday, uh, Zeke and I were out running errands, and as we were, as we were driving around, this song played uh, on the stereo from my playlist. You know what it is. What song is this? Sweet Home Alabama. Who doesn't know this, right? I mean, even if you're not an Alabama native or fan, you know this song. Do you know the words to the first verse? Ooh, that's a little trickier, isn't it? Big wheels keep on turning, carrying me, carrying me home to see my kin. Singing songs about the Southland, I miss Alabama once again, and I think it's a sin. Yes. So let's get this straight. When, uh, uh, when we've been away from home for too long, when my family's gone on vacation and, and we're all to that point where we're enjoying vacation, but we'd really just rather be home, we're kind of missing home, or, or when our kids go off to camp and it's been a great camp, but it's getting towards the end and they're tired and you know, they, they really just kind of want their own bed and they're kind of missing home, that's a sin? Hmm. I'm not so sure about that. Especially ironic because none of the members of Winter Skinner actually were from Alabama, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> what I think may be close to a sin, though, is teasing you with that song and not letting you sing along with the chorus. If we play it, will you sing along? Will you do that? All right, let's play it. Thanks for humoring me. If nothing else, you can go to your coworker who you've been trying to invite to church and say, totally, you should come to my church. My pastor plays Sweet Home Alabama. They'll either look at you and never talk to you again, or maybe they'll say, yeah, what time is it? Okay, in all seriousness, we often miss the full weight of God's glory because we don't grasp the full weight of our sin. And we do this all the time. How many of you have ever said something like, Oh, man, this chocolate cake is so delicious, it's sinful. I, I hear the nervous laughter on that one. We do this all the time. We downplay sin. But Scripture doesn't take such a lighthearted view of sin. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament... 
Uh, the Old Testament uses nine different words for sins. Six of them are nouns, three of them are verbs, but nine words for sins. And, that, and that's not talking about specific names of specific sins like murder and gossip and uh, backbiting and, and adultery. Those are, that's a whole other set of words. These nine words that the Old Testament uses to describe sin are like category words. You know, it's like an umbrella under which other things live. It's an idea, nine different ideas of what it means to sin. And, and of those nine, three consistently bubble to the top as kind of the major descriptors of God's view and God's understanding of sin. David uses all three of those key words for sin here in this passage. Let me, let's just take a minute and walk through them. Matter of fact, let's start in verse 10. The first half of the verse says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. The, the Hebrew word here for sin is the word hate. You can see it on the screen. It's spelled, it's transliterated H-E-T. We would pronounce it like we would say hate, like I hate chocolate cake. And whoever said that, that is a sin, okay? Uh, hate is the Hebrew word. And it essentially means to miss the mark. It means I know what I'm supposed to do and I tried to do it, but I didn't quite accomplish it. So if we think in terms of a target, this is the mark, this is the living that God desires and hate, this word for sin, which by the way is used like almost 600 times in the Old Testament, it's the predominant understanding of sin. This, this Hebrew word says, I missed it. I didn't get the bullseye. Maybe I missed it close. Maybe I missed it far. But I knew, I knew the standard. I knew what the goal was. I just wasn't able to do it. I wasn't able to hit the target. Maybe we did the wrong thing, but for the right reasons. And so the scripture would say we missed the mark. Maybe we did the right thing, but for the wrong reasons or in the wrong way. And so scripture would say we, we missed the mark. But at least we knew what the standard was, what the target was, where we were aiming. We just couldn't quite connect. This is the first word for sin that David uses and, and the most common word for sin in the Old Testament. But David uses another word. Look at the second half of verse 10. He says, or repay us. God, God doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. The Hebrew word here is avon. You can see it on the screen. It's spelled with a W. You pronounce that W like a V. I couldn't write A-V-O-N because I didn't want a line of pink cars out here next week saying that I'm calling their company sin. If you don't get that, ask your parents. Um, it's pronounced avon. It means evil behavior, morally objectionable behavior, perversity. As a matter of fact, let me just give you um, just a sense of how this Hebrew word is used throughout the Old Testament to describe sin. This is, this is probably going to baffle you as I get to the end because it did me at first. Here's some of the examples. It's used in Numbers 531. Jot this down in your notes if you want to. This word avon is used in Numbers 531 to describe adultery. We would say, okay, sure, that's evil behavior. That's perversity. Absolutely. It's used in Jeremiah 16, 10 through 11 to describe idolatry, worshiping another God and setting up a visual representation of that false God. Again, we would probably say, most of us, yeah, that is, that is evil behavior. That is definitely perverse. Psalm 78, 37 through 38 the same verb is used to describe not being steadfast or consistent or devoted 
to God. That surprised me. I wouldn't necessarily call that evil or perverse or morally objectionable. But this is what scripture calls it. When I don't maintain my commitment to God, when I'm lazy in my faith, it's a vone. It's this kind of sin. So when we, when we come to the, the target, this is a little bit different. Whereas hate means to, to miss the mark, to at least try and, and miss the mark. What Avon talks about is taking the target and reshaping it. Do you like that magic? Into something else of our own liking. I don't really like that target that I'm supposed to shoot at. So I like this teddy bear much better. I, I think that's much more pleasing, much easier, more, more to my liking. Avon changes the target. It shapes it to be what we want it to be. David uses another word, the third most common word for sin in the Old Testament. Jump down to verse 12, the second half. David writes, so far has he removed our, what's your English word? Transgressions. The Hebrew word here is pesha. Pesha means to rebel or to revolt. The, the fundamental idea here is that I'm going to breach the relationship. I'm going to disregard. I'm going to ignore the relationship. So when it comes to the target, this visual illustration we use, Pesha says, I don't care. Pesha says, forget about that. Forget about the standard. Forget about the goal. Forget about what God wants. It doesn't really matter to me. This is Pesha. This is transgressions, rebellion, revolting against what God wants. So uh, the key to understanding this whole illustration with these, well, now two targets, is that this is God. The standard, the target, isn't a paper target. The standard is who God is, the way that he lives. What God desires and requires of us is that we be like him, not in comparison, not like, eh, close enough, like we be exactly like him, that our life be a mere representation of who he is. The bullseye and the goal here is to live like God. And so hate says, uh, uh, well, I understand who he is and I'm trying I'm trying, I'm doing the best that I can, but I, I just don't always, I just don't always do it. I, I, I just sometimes miss. Avon says, well, you know, I'd, I'd really like God better if he said it was okay that I indulge this, uh, this thing. I, I mean, I was born like this. So obviously God's okay with it because he made me that way or um, Avon says we're going to remake God into our own image. Like perhaps we could say like the serpent said to Adam and Eve in the garden, Avon says, did God really say that that's what you should do or not do? And then we come over here to Pesha and Pesha says, God who? David says, this is who we are. This is who we are as people. Most of us, if we're to be honest, probably have no problem seeing ourselves down here with hate. We would probably acknowledge, I do miss the mark. You know what? Sometimes I just open my mouth and I can't believe what came out and I'm so sorry. Probably fewer of us would, would be, be willing to admit or acknowledge, 
there are ways in which I've remade God in my own image, when I've questioned what God has said so I could do what I wanted to do. And if I don't miss my guess, even fewer of us would say, Pesha is me. I've like torn up the target and done it my own way. Maybe some of us would say that's who I used to be. But as a follower of Christ now, hopefully we wouldn't say that. And yet David says, this is true of all of us. Let's put this maybe in terms that we can relate to a little bit more. Let's say that you um, say to your child or your friend or your aging parent, while I'm gone, please do not drive my car. And if you're not driving yet, ride my bicycle. Um, you just make that translation in your head. Please do not drive my car. I've washed it. I've got it shiny and I'm driving in the parade tomorrow. I don't want it dirty. I don't want to have to rewash it before the parade, okay? That's the target you've set up. Please don't drive my car. And so you go and you run your errands and you come back. And let's say that, that your, your child, your friend, or your aging parent says to you, um, I, I, uh, I know that you said not to drive your car and so I didn't but I wanted to see how nice it looked. And so I went out and while I was looking at it, I kind of stumbled and the glass of chocolate milk in my hand spilled all over the car. I'm so sorry. Okay, I know, corny. Like who has these things happen? But just pretend. Or let's say you came home and your child, your friend, or your aging parent says, well, listen, I heard you say don't drive your car, but I knew what you were really concerned about was getting it dirty. So here's the deal. I just went around the block. I avoided all the mud puddles. Look, there's no dirt on it. It's just fine. Or you come home and uh, see that your car has obviously been moved. The the hood's still warm. And and you go inside and your your child, your friend, or your aging parent says, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. This is how the Bible describes sin. Now, how would you respond in any of these situations? I imagine that your response might be difficult based, I mean, it might be different based on each response you get, those where it was an accident, those where it was just, you know, kind of rewriting who you are and those who said, you're not the boss. I mean, you'd probably respond differently, but in each case, the relationship would be violated. And this is the worst, the ugliest reality about sin. It damages the relationship between me and God. This is what Isaiah says later on in in, in Isaiah 59 too. He says, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. He cannot hear you when you pray because sin damages the relationship between me and God. It's like a flesh-eating bacteria. It continues to eat away at the relationship that God desires to have with me. It continues to make it easier and easier for me to go further and further away from who God is, to, to miss the mark by more and more, to redefine who he is and what he wants more and more, to, to, to get to the point where we would say, you know what, I just don't care anymore. And this is how David describes all of us. But notice what David says about God. In the midst of our missing the mark, in the midst of us redefining the mark, in the midst of us discarding the mark, David says that the Lord is compassionate and gracious. Let me take that back. 
David says it, yes, but God said it first. I am gracious and compassionate. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This word compassion in the Hebrew in the Old Testament has this sense of stooping to help someone who can't help themselves. I can remember in elementary school, I was being bullied by uh, one of the school bullies. His name was Scott, and uh, Scott was smaller than me, so figured if he could once and for all show how cool, how great he was by uh, beating up the bigger kid, then uh, I guess he could seal his place and bully them. I don't know. Um, so one day the fight started, went all the way from the elementary school to where I lived, about a mile, mile and a half away or so. The whole way, me running from him and then stopping to catch my breath, hoping he wouldn't catch me, and then running some more. And that stop to catch your breath thing happened a lot. Uh, eventually he caught up with me just a couple houses down from where I lived. And uh, there was... Um, a decent-sized crowd who had followed the whole thing and neighborhood kids who had heard the commotion and come out. And, and so there, there we are, Scott and me, fighting. And uh, I may have been bigger, but I wasn't... I was a teddy bear. I'm a lover, not a fighter. And so Scott was getting the upper hand. And eventually my dad heard the commotion and walked across the block and down a couple lots and kind of shooed off the neighborhood kids who had come to watch and pulled Scott off me and, and Scott took off. My dad looked at me and he bent over and he extended his hand and he helped me up. This is the picture of compassion. As a matter of fact, David says it. Was it down in, in verse 14? He says, or 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Back up in verse 4, he says, He crowns you with love. And compassion, God understands our weakness. He knows our frailty. He knows that even when we want our best to do the right thing, sometimes we just can't. We try so hard and we still miss the mark and we don't understand why. God understands it's because we're dust. Without his breath in our lungs, we're nothing but dust. He knows that we're frail. He knows that we're awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. And he has compassion. He reaches down to help us. He's gracious. He's extend, he extends to us favor that's not deserved. And, and we, kind of, we kind of understand this. We treat each other with grace. And we could stand to do more of that probably. But this is when a, when a child says uh, to his dad, uh, Dad, I know my room's not clean, but I haven't seen Johnny in like all summer and he wants to play. Dad, will you give me grace so I can go outside and play and clean my room later? And, and a gracious dad says, yeah, go play with Johnny and you can clean your room before dinner. Or we, uh, we talk about grace when we go out to eat and we leave a gratuity which is an act of grace for the server. We do something that's perhaps undeserved, that goes over and above their regular pay. Now catch this though. The biblical writers never use this word for Jesus, for God, compassionate and gracious. They never use this specific word to describe the grace we show to each other as humans. This word used here is like a whole nother level. It's like the, the biblical writers, the Holy Spirit said, this is a whole nother game. This is a whole nother level. The way that God treats his children, his forgiveness, his unmerited favor, it's far above what humans could ever do. So we're not even going to use this word for humans. He's slow to anger. It literally means it takes a long time for his nostrils to flare. Do you get that word picture? 
Like, you know some people when they become angry, you see their nostrils get bigger and you're like, um, I'm going to go to the other room for now. The Bible says it takes a long time for God to get to that point where he's angry. He's slow to anger. Doesn't mean he doesn't get angry. You continue to ignore God. You continue to remake his word. You continue to walk your own direction. You continue to do things the way you want to do them, ignoring God's word. And the Bible promises God will become angry with you. But notice what David promises even in the midst of that. Verse 9, he won't harbor his anger forever. When God does become angry with us, he acts in a way that will lead us to repentance that'll lead us back to who he is. He doesn't, he doesn't rehearse and rehash every wrong thing we've done. He doesn't build up a full head of steam until he can give it to us. It's like his compassion and his grace are a governor or a limiter on his anger. And when he does become angry, the goal is redemption. The goal is to move us back into line, to get us back on target. And David says he's abounding in love. He's got so much love for us. Notice what else Dave says. Verse 4, God crowns us with love. Verse 11, his love reaches from here beyond the furthest edges of the galaxy as we know it. Verse 17, God's love started before time and it will continue after time stops. So great is God's love for us. David goes to great lengths to say we are all desperate sinners. But we have a glorious, gloriously forgiving God. This is the message throughout scripture. As a matter of fact, I'd like to turn our attention to Isaiah 53. We're going to put it on the screen. And I'm actually going to ask you to read this aloud with me. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want you to notice something here. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. The Hebrew word that Isaiah uses here is the word pesha. When we disregard God and we say, God who, you're not the boss of me. Jump down to uh, verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We've gone the wrong direction. What does that sound like to you? We've missed the mark. But the Lord has laid on him at the end of verse 6, the iniquity, the avon of us all. See, God has fully dealt with our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah's writing about Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin, but became sin so that we could be made right with God. This is God's glorious compassion, his glorious forgiveness that in Jesus Christ, he would deal with every single sinful act and every single tendency that we have. This is how great his love is for us. This is the aboundingness of God's love. As a matter of fact, listen to the way some of the New Testament writers talk about God abounding in love. And you know this one, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Isaiah 53, so that whoever believes in him doesn't have to face the consequences for our uh, missing the mark, for our redefining the mark, for our ignoring the mark. 
but we can have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Second Peter 3, 9, it says, God is patient with you. He's slow to anger. He doesn't want you to suffer the consequences of your sin. Romans 2, 4 says, God treats us with kindness so that we'll come to repentance. And Hebrews 12 talks about uh, when God disciplines us. God, God disciplines us in love so that we'll grow, so that we'll return to the, the standard, the mark, so that we will uh, attempt to live like Jesus lives. It may hurt, the writer of Hebrews says. All discipline does, but God does it because he loves us, because he wants us to return to living in a way that pleases him. We're all desperately sinful, but we have a glorious, gracious, and forgiving and compassionate God. So what do we do with this? I'd like to suggest three proper responses. First of all, own your sin. Own your sin. I'd like to remind you that it's King David that wrote Psalm 103. And do you know why he could write these things? Because he came face to face with his own ugliness. He owned the fact that he was an adulterer, that he was a murderer, that he was dishonest, that, that he struggled with things that no man should struggle with. But he was able to own that and ask for God's forgiveness. And so he could write about how desperately wicked he was and how glorious for, gloriously forgiving God is. In light of God's compassion and his mercy, own your sin, confess it, claim it as yours. Don't make excuses. Don't try to repaint the picture so it doesn't look so bad. Acknowledge before God that you're a broken man, a broken woman. Secondly, I would say we don't just own our sin because a lot of people today own their sin and they're okay with it. But there has to be another step. We have to leave our sin. We can't just say, oh, well, I'm screwed up. Deal with it. That's the way God made me. No, 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 no. There's a, there's a different standard. And with God's help, we can reach it. So acknowledge your brokenness to God and then ask him for help to change. Call your sin what it is. It's wrong. You're not just stubborn and hard-headed. That's a sin. And acknowledge that to God and then ask him to make you soft-hearted and tender-hearted and kind. You don't just struggle with lust. You're involved in sexual perversion. And so do something to prevent that. Put filters on your devices. Find an accountability partner who you can be honest Ask God as you're doing those things to forgive you and to change you, to help you to, to, to not see the opposite sex as body parts, but as people. To, to help God, uh, to, to ask God to help you rethink about your entertainment choices. Stop watching the things that, uh, the, that are leading you down that sinful alley of sexual perversion, as the Bible calls it. If your marriage is struggling, own it acknowledge that. Ask God for his grace to help you to come back together to heal your marriage. And as you're asking God for that, go get counseling help. Start reading the Bible together and praying together. Make the, the most important thing the most important things to you. Leave your sin and ask God to give you the grace to change.
And then finally, the third thing I would say is, as David did multiple times in Psalm 103, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that even though we're desperately wicked and have no hope of ever hitting the target, that God is gracious, he's compassionate, he's patient, and he loves us. He loves us enough to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And that's not a one-time thing. That's not just salvation and I'm good. That's God involved in every part of our life. Praise the Lord. Sing praises to his name. Thank him for his forgiveness. Own your sin, not so that it defines you, but so that you can praise God for that from which he's delivered you, for that which he's given you strength to continue walking away from. Praise the Lord that he is so good.